1: Plastic is everywhere in our homes, offices, streets, and oceans. Most plastic is made from fossil fuels that took millions of years to create. It's made into products used for just a few moments and then thrown away or recycled. Plastics made from plants are favored by health and environmentally conscious consumers, but are they really any better for people or the planet? Over the next hour, we'll look at petroleum and bioplastics, as well as a generation of entrepreneurs cooking up new technologies that will move away From the fossil fuel economy. Along the way, we will include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. With us, Keith Christman is Managing Director of the Plastics Markets at the American Chemistry Council and co chair of the Global Action Committee on Marine Litter. Adam Lowry is co founder and chief greenskeeper of Method Products, a maker of home cleaning supplies. And Bridget Luther is President of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. She previously was director of the California Department of Conservation, where she oversaw the state's recycling program and regulated the oil and gas industry. Also, Molly Moore, CEO of Mango Materials, a startup company developing technology to make biodegradable plastic from industrial waste. Her PhD at Stanford University focused on bioplastics. Please welcome them all to Climate One. So, Bridget Luther, I want to begin with you and tell us first how plastics resulted. It's a huge industry, something like $400 billion in the United States a year, started as uh, using a waste product.
3: Yeah, when I was at the Department of Conservation, I learned a lot about plastics because we ran the Beverage Container Recycling Program, and they recycle billions of containers, 18 billion containers a year. I thought, oh, we're going to eat this plastic before it's all over, but it was really thinking about plastic and where it came from, that got me all engaged in the program at Stanford, which Molly was a student at. And it was a waste product. So the oil companies kind of said, we have all this leftover waste for refining oil. What can we do it? And they developed polymer. So now there's other things that are going on and other people looking at ways to develop polymers, like Molly and some of her colleagues. And so we can use a different product for plastic. It be much more recyclable. And we wouldn't be using a non-renewable resource.
1: So Molly, tell us how you went from uh, your path developing a waste product to mango materials.
2: So my background was actually looking at construction materials, and we were looking at biodegradable materials that could replace timber for temporary applications. And we became really um, interested in the different kinds of glues you can use in the construction industry. And one of the glues that is environmentally friendly is called PHA, polyhydroxyalkanoate. We became very excited about alternative ways to produce this, because it's normally made by sugar, um, bacteria that are fed sugar. So instead of doing that, you can feed them methane, a waste gas or any form of methane. And so that's was part of the work that was going on at Stanford. It was part of my PhD as well as many other people's PhDs. So after I graduated from Stanford, I actually consulted for a bit and then realized that although this idea was really in its infancy, it really could drastically change the fate of plastics in the environment and in the world. So I started Mango Materials with um, some of my friends from Stanford and some other um, colleagues I had met, and we started a company to commercialize this. It's still very early stage, but we're very excited about the potential.
1: Early stage, I think your, your current office is in a, a shipping container. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, right, so cool.
2: our, our 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 field demonstration site okay. is in a shipping container <laughs> at a wastewater treatment plant. So.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Um, Adam Lowry, let's talk about you were a former climate scientist. How did you get into making soap?
4: Yeah, I, I worked for Dr. Chris Field. He's a well-known, uh, mm-hmm. very world-renowned uh, climate scientist and one of the authors of the uh, lead authors of the IPCC reports. And uh, as sort of the low man on the to- totem pole, I did a lot of the climate science that was supposed to lead to policy change. And this was over 10 years ago. And the reason I went into business and started a business is Uh, I was, well, firstly, not the world's greatest scientist I learned, Uh, and then secondly, I wanted to find a way to really make mainstream ideas around sustainability and responsibility of materials, and I was finding that by doing climate science, even though I was passionate about the science, uh, we all know the uphill battle that climate science is in the political sphere, and so I decided to go a different path, and that's what led me to starting my business, uh, much the way you have. Uh, 15 years ago, and uh, now we're the world's largest green cleaning product uh, company. In North America, we've got about 120 employees worldwide. We've probably got about uh, 250 or so. I don't really keep count. Um, we, uh, we we make probably close to 100 million bottles a year, uh, almost all of which are completely free of virgin plastic altogether.
1: Okay, we'll get into more of that shortly. Uh, Keith Crispin, tell us how you came to into the plastics industry. Your background?
5: Well, I've worked at, at American Chemistry Council for uh, I guess about 23 years on different policy issues, and uh, today I, I work on uh, plastic markets, things from building and construction where plastics used for insulation and products like that, uh, automotive where we're working on. CAFE standards and increasing fuel economy with lighter weight cars with plastics and also with packaging products.
1: I looked up in re- researching for this program, I looked up at, at a site, uh, fivegyres.org, and one of their taglines there is that it's made, for, made to last forever and designed to throw away. We know about the – that's plastics, right? And so there's a lot of plastic pollution in the oceans. I think pe- a lot of people have seen – uh, birds where their stomachs are full of bottle caps, et cetera. So what is the industry approach to ad- addressing that plastic pollution problem in the, in the oceans?
5: Well, first off, we, we, we know plastic doesn't belong in the oceans. We don't want it in the oceans. Our products are, are too valuable to end up there. We want to keep them from being in the oceans and other waterways. Our um, associations across the world have joined together, announced a public declaration at the Fifth International Marine debris Conference, over 50 associations from over 30 countries committed to uh, actions to reduce marine debris. And since that time, in, in 2011, we've announced over 140 different projects to help reduce marine debris.
1: And the biggest ones you think will be most effective? To well, keep...
5: here in California, an example is we've worked with uh, California State Parks and Keep California Beautiful to put over 700 recycling bins on state beaches. Uh, we're doing research with some UN organizations on microplastics and and issues around that. We're working with them, also with Keep America Beautiful, a nationwide campaign called I Want to Be Recycled that promotes recycling and raises people's awareness about the ability and and need to recycle more products and the benefits of doing so.
1: Bridget, Luther used to oversee California's conservation recycling program. What do you think of that industry approach to marine
5: water plastic pollution?
3: Oh, it's, it's great. It's just a small, you know, there's so many holes in the dike. Where are you going to put your finger? I guess for me at the Cradle to Cradle, it's like it's not that just the plastics are in the ocean, but that they're toxic. And so the toxic plastics are getting into the fish, and that's getting into our food stream. So it's not only poisoning marine life, and it just looks terrible when you look at it, and you look on the beach, and it's a terrible thing. But wouldn't it be great if we had some innovators who actually invented a plastic that was good for fish? So if it was good for fish, it might be good for people. And I know that at Stanford, they've also been looking at a plastic that has a salinity trigger. So then when it gets in the ocean, it would actually disappear or it would become something that would be valuable. So I think we need to always talk about, you know, what are we actually doing with the stuff we make, and is it having a positive benefit? And that's the whole philosophy behind the Institute and our certification program. And I think that the innovation that's going on in just in the two universities. We saw so much innovation going on in this area at Berkeley Green Chemistry, at Stanford's Woods Institute. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that would be super valuable if we could just have the demand for it. For Mango Materials, she's going to invent this great stuff, but we've got to get it off the shelf and get it out there so that companies actually start using it. So I'd like to see the American Chemistry Council just have this whole innovation thing going on. I think it'd be so fun.
5: <laughs> and innovation's part of the things we do. Uh, We have members who are making bioplastic. One of the world's biggest producers of bioplastics is one of our members. So innovation is something we certainly endorse and certainly promote. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about plastics is it can be made from a variety of different forms of carbon, whether it's bio-based carbon or or other types. So that is one of the benefits of plastics, and you can organize it in ways to, to make different products.
1: Adam Lowry, you're actually harvesting some of the plastic from the gyres and making bottles out of them, or from beaches, anyway. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, we're, we're making this product here, which is a, I'm holding a small gray teardrop-shaped bottle, about 12 ounces, that's made 100% from post-consumer material, uh, a good significant portion of which comes from plastic we've harvested out of the oceans. Now, the reason we've done this product, which is just two products amongst many that we have uh, method-branded products, is really to raise awareness. Um, We're not trying to solve the ocean plastic problem by taking plastic out of the oceans and making bottles out of it. But by doing that, we're demonstrating that what people say is impossible actually is possible. And I believe taking sort of the first most important step towards uh, addressing the ocean plastic pollution problem. Uh, The real solution is actually what Method does with the tens of millions of other bottles that we make, which is, uh, this is a bottle that's made out of 100% post consumer recycled PET the same plastic that's in a common water bottle. And this was something that not too long ago people said was absolutely impossible. You could not make a clear high quality bottle that looked this good that was made entirely out of post consumer material. And you know the carbon footprint of this plastic resin is 60 to 70 75% lower than virgin plastic. And what what I think is really important about that is there is a lot of exciting development going on in the bioplastics sphere, but there's also some things that uh, we don't talk about in terms of uh, where this stuff really ends up. And using the plastic that's already on the planet is a solution that we have today. So uh, I tend to favor solutions that we can employ right now rather than saying, yeah, the technology's coming. Yes, we need to invest in technology, and technology is going to help. That shouldn't stop us from doing what's right today.
1: So, What about just sending big ships out to the oceans and sucking that stuff up? And, and I mean, that sounds naive. Is it too simplistic to go out yeah. there and, and suck all that up? <laughs> yeah, there, there,
4: there, are, there are organizations that are working on that. Um, as a chemical engineer, I can tell you from just kind of a, an energy standpoint, it doesn't really work. Um, the plastic is too small, too spread out in order to practically do that. uh, We gather the plastic for our ocean plastic bottle on the beaches of Hawaii because it's sort of horrifying, but the beaches of Hawaii actually act as a natural sieve, and they collect the types of plastic that we can use to put back into a recyclable bottle. So we've kind of used that infrastructure and then partnerships within Hawaii with beach cleanup organizations to kind of get the stuff. But like I said, this is really done to raise awareness about the fact that we should use the plastic that's already on the planet. As consumers, we should demand products that come from recycled plastics because it's a solution we have today that works, and it's uh, combined with other things uh, is a solution that uh, I believe is not utilized enough.
1: Keith Crispin, let's get you on that. Utilizing the plastic that already exists, and
5: is that economic? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it, it, there is more demand for recycled plastic than there is supply people putting it in the recycling bin. That's the challenge we face. There's a lot of companies that want to use the material. There's a lot of recycled um, carpet. Recycled material goes into a variety of different products, and the demand in the United States exceeds supply today. So the key is really getting uh, everyone to put their plastics in the recycling bin when they're done using them.
1: Let's get at that. If there's demand, because a lot of times we've heard the opposite about recycling, that people recycle their stuff, and there isn't a the demand for recycled materials, etc., and it ends up getting getting thrown away. Bridget Luther, you've, you've managed this process in California.
3: Yeah, the demand is getting much higher now, because virgin the cost of virgin, the cost of recycles, there's more parity now. So, And a lot of this is by what's happening in China, and so we're all affected by this world is flat syndrome that we face. But I think with You know, Adam, companies like Method would actually demand the recycled plastic. More states would actually participate in recycling. I don't know when you go out of California what you see, but I know what I see. There's not a lot of recycling going on in some of the other states. There's only 11 states that have what they call the bottle bill program, where everybody gets a little incentive to take your bottle back because you paid the nickel at the store and now you want the nickel back. So a lot of plastic is going into landfills in many states around the country that we could actually help if they could just be like California, it would be much better, and there would be plenty of recycled plastic for people like Adam.
1: Those fighting words in some uh, some parts of the country. <laughs> Those um, are
3: fighting words in some part of the country, but it's California, so you can kind of put it right out there, right? There you go. Um,
1: Bridget Luther uh, is president of the Cradle C- Cradle Innovation Institute and former head of the Department of Conservation in California. Let's talk about plastic bags. Uh, started in San Francisco in 2007, there was a ban on plastic bags. Now currently about 100 cities and counties in the state of California have either banned or put a price on plastic
5: bags. Uh, Keith Grisman, is that a good thing to do? Well, I think there's, there's some challenges in that. One of the concerns we have about bans alone are that um, the infrastructure that we use to recycle plastic bags and other product wraps the wraps that go around cases of soda or a case of uh, paper towels or diapers or other products, those things can be brought back to the grocery store. A lot of people don't know that. So that infrastructure to recycle those materials is mostly in the grocery stores around the country. There's more than 15,000 different locations that people can bring them back to. Uh, We've been working with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition and their How to Recycle label to get labels on those products so that people know to bring those things back to their grocery store. So one thing we are concerned about is an unintended consequence is that that infrastructure at grocery stores to recycle other kinds of wraps, today we recycle over a billion pounds of, could be inadvertently lost There could be an unintended consequence of that.
1: But what's the consequence for the members of the American Chemistry Council in terms of if those bags come back, do they make less money? Is it is it kind of a nuisance? It, it, does it, parts of the companies that are after, more interested in virgin plastic? You know, what are the, the consequences for the members of, of that, that closed cycle, that supply stream?
5: Our companies want to increase the recycling rate. It's a strong desire of our companies to dramatically increase the recycling of plastics. And that's why we're working on Film recycling with groups like SPC in the state of Wisconsin with a new wrap program to increase plastic wrap recycling. We've got a program on rigid containers. That isn't a threat to our plastic companies. They want to dramatically increase recycling and recovery. Bridget Luther?
3: Show of hands. Who really misses their old bags? Okay, just for the radio audience, not one person well they had so you know we can all make changes and there's a lot of energy that goes into making bags and we can just reuse bags over and over and i just think it's a great thing i just you know it's nice that the infrastructure was there but in the end you know it's not just about recycling but it's also about reducing our waste too because there's just a lot of stuff that we could spend our energy better on than recycling bags that we didn't need in the first place.
5: I will say, too, we do strongly support reducing, reusing, and recycling. So people reusing their bags and and using reusable bags is also something that we support.
3: And that's a great thing.
1: But does the industry oppose uh, putting a price on plastic bags, that sort of thing? has been back and forth in California between a ban or a price. I think there's a a bill in the state uh, legislature that uh, is trying to get out to, to ban plastic bags. Obviously, a lot of
5: members think that's probably a bad idea, right? Well, we're not the organization that works on plastic bags any longer. So I want to be clear on that first off. But also um, the side we're working on is the recycling side of plastic bags and wraps. So there is also some concern when places we've seen put in place attacks, sometimes they've taken out their recycling bin because people would go into the recycling bin and pull out bags to use. So there are some concerns about that as well. We're talking about uh, plastics and uh, carbon at Climate One
1: at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Keith Crispin from the American Chemistry Council, Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, Bridget Luther with the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, and Molly Morris from Mango Materials. How about plastic bottles? That's another thing that's a topic here in San Francisco. We don't allow them or like them here at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, the city of San Francisco is trying to ban them. Uh, Keith Crisman, uh, let's talk about plastic bottles. Same thing as bags, or are they different?
5: Well, plastic bottles are highly recycled. Um, In California, the recycling rate's over 80% for CRV bottles. So they can be recycled, reused, and made into a variety of new products, fleece, uh, jackets, and other products. So reducing, reusing, and recycling is something we strongly support. Adam, what do you think about plastic water bottles? Personally, I think that the way we use plastic needs to
4: change, along with the infrastructure to recover it and reuse it. So uh, using plastic the way we do now, which for many single-use applications where the the plastic is only there to keep something pristine until you take it home and either throw it away or recycle it, we we should try to move away from that as a use of plastic because um, while Keith's got some nice stats about how much does get recycled, the national average for PET uh, recycling is 24%. So for every pound that gets recycled, three of them are in a landfill for water bottle plastic. And water bottles is a very large user of those, of those things. And California is a great example, but it's not like the rest of the world. So I think, you know, we should adapt. We should find new ways. That is both technologies as well as consumer behaviors to move away from single-use plastics. I'm not one to demonize plastic, however. I think plastic is, a, is as, as everyone here would agree, is a, is a high-value material. We just need to make sure that we use it correctly and then pair it with the ability to get it back whether through a technical cycle like a petroleum-based plastic or a biological one um, through, through a, a bioplastic.
1: Let's talk about uh, bioplastics. Molly Morris, you've uh, done your dissertation, a lot of research on this. Uh, a lot of people think that, that salad fork made out of corn or potato uh, is better, that compostable salad container is more virtuous than one made out of big, bad oil. Is that really true?
2: Um, that's a complicated question. It depends on a lot of factors. I mean, some plastics, bioplastics, as we call them, could be made from certain sorts of used agricultural lands in their production, for instance. Maybe they use a lot of water. Um, there can be all sorts of different concerns with the way they're made. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of different types of ways to make bioplastics from different sorts of plants. What, what we're doing at Mako Materials is using methane gas, which can be a waste gas from wastewater treatment plants or landfills or agricultural facilities. Using methane gas is a really different story than using corn. Um, You know, maybe you're converting the corn into sugar, into some other chemicals that you ultimately make a plastic out of. Uh, It's really hard to compare those two materials. And at the end of the day, the plastic that you make is often different as well. So the common bioplastics that people often are familiar with, such as this cup that Adam has that's made by NatureWorks, it's a polylactic acid, a corn-based plastic, that's really different than the type of plastic that Mango Materials is producing. It's a different polymer. It has different properties. It has different end-use properties. So the way it breaks down in different environments is different. Um, for instance, that material needs industrial compost. It needs oxygen it needs a certain infrastructure to break down the type of biopolymer we're currently producing actually can break down under anaerobic conditions if no oxygen's present it can break down in the ocean that that plastic's not going to break down in the
4: ocean And I think, I think'll bringing up a really good point here which is um, bioplastics as a whole can give people consumers a false sense of responsibility and I think that's very important this plastic that I'm holding in my hand, which is an ordinary drink cup made out of a a bioplastic, PLA in this case. Um, When people use these things at a concert or a place like this and they throw it in the trash, people think that this thing is going to biodegrade. And it doesn't. It's going to be there decades or centuries later, just like the red Solo Cup. Okay? Because, you know, as, as was said, it needs an industrial compost. It needs heat and moisture in order to break down. And so... I think that's really dangerous because there's millions of these things around right now and people think, oh, it's biodegradable. I'm just going to chuck it. And it perpetuates the single-use uh, behavior of using plastics and chucking them away. When really what we've got to do is we've got, if we're going to use something like this, we've got to pair it with the ability to get all of it back so that we can reuse it, in this case in a biological cycle. Or do stuff along the lines of what Molly's doing, um, which is uh, recycling using a technology that can actually degrade in conditions that aren't you know special.
1: So here uh, the the plastic cup that Adam's holding up, the Commonwealth <laughs> Club thought, oh this is better than petroleum. <laughs> sorry, no, <laughs> well, it might be. Just, it might sorry, be. Yeah. <laughs> harsh sorry. buzz. No, uh, but I went into similarly. I went into a,
4: a, a <laughs> they have composting in in
1: yeah, San, Francisco, in San Francisco. Francisco, so it's, it's totally fine. Less so Bridget bad. Luther, when we put that in the compost stream in San Francisco. Is that plastic cup going to get broken down in an industrial kind of composting way, or is it going to be there in 30 years? Because you work with Recology, which is the uh, recycler, uh, trash collector in San Francisco. Yeah, just
3: like Adam said, we're super lucky, Um, but I think we are fooling ourselves. So that's kind of interesting. I was really excited when I got up here because you said, oh, there's going to be a water bottle next to your chair, but what's next to my chair is, is something that's reusable, and that was just a great thing to see how often you don't see that. Uh, you go to these environmental conferences, and then they've got all these water bottles everywhere, and we're Plastic all like, what, what's happening here? It's kind of crazy-making. Yeah. Greg, Greg, the Bay So Area we're batting is 500 here tonight. So, yeah. yeah.
4: Okay. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that the Bay Area is the only place in the country that has industrial composting on any sort of scale. I think Correct.
5: Seattle's the only other one, but yes. Y- yeah, yes.
4: And, and, but, but not nearly the scale that we have here. So, you know, that's going to grow, but um, we need to make sure that we use these materials along with that growth so that we don't you know, get things out of balance and inadvertently end up, you know, just exacerbating the problem of plastic pollution.
1: So how can an average consumer keep up with all this stuff? It's so confusing. <laughs> I mean, I do this for a living and I learn stuff and I'm doing the wrong thing. Brid- Bridget Luther, I mean, this is too complicated for an average citizen. <laughs> well, it's I bad. mean, Molly has a PhD in this and it's hard for her, so the rest of us are just in trouble, right?
3: I think we should all become designers. One of the things we talk about cradle-to-cradle is design for the end of use, and so when you're thinking about your own use of something. Really think before you buy it. What's going to happen to this at the end of use? In San Francisco? The compostable thing is a good thing, but you have to make sure it gets right into the right container. And I think you know, a lot of what we do, where is it going to go next? Because there is no away. And so how are we using things in our own life? And then what does that look like at the end of it? Whether it's a refrigerator, a car, or a plastic cup. And I think that's one of the things I love about Cradle to Cradle so much because it really takes you to that that higher level of, you know, where am I going next with my stuff?
1: So the idea is that something at the end of the life can be made into something of equal or greater value, upcycling, that sort of thing, right? Right, right. How much of that is really, that's, you know, uh, Bill McDonough, who founded the Institute you had, has been talking and writing about that for a long time. How much of it is actually happening today?
3: Well... Um, part of it is the infrastructure need. One of the things I was just writing about, because there was a lot of talk about this at Davos and the circular economy, the infrastructure has to be there. So we've got all this stuff, and it can go somewhere else. Who is actually going to get it there? And California made a big investment in recycling 40 years ago. They put the infrastructure in place. And we're seeing the payoff in that now. What about all the other things that we have that don't have a place to go? The used hair dryer, the old vacuum cleaner, your cell phones, whatever – you know, is the infrastructure in place to make sure that all that material gets back, not into the ocean, into something that's really valuable at, at the end of use. So I think there's got to be a real thought now about what's the next series of infrastructures that we need to build so that we get stuff back and we don't keep mining and we don't keep destroying forests and all these kinds of things and rivers because really there's enough aluminum in probably landfills around the world. I'm seeing Mike Biddle right here on the front row. <laughs> <laughs> to build a whole fleet of airplanes, we wouldn't have to mine any aluminum at all. So California has really got to put themselves out there on this sort of take it, sort of beating the drum on the infrastructure to get stuff back and really start thinking about what's the next round of infrastructure we need, whether it's industrial composting or, you know, collection facility for old electronics so they're not just shipped to California.
1: Adam Lauer, you talked earlier about policy failure and, and the, the role of business, but do you think policy needs to happen, and if so, what kind of policies in California to move this along, to, to move us toward more of a circular economy where things are reused rather than just chucked in landfill?
4: Yeah, like a lot of people, I'm not generally uh, optimistic about our government's ability to create uh, progressive policy right now, but um, yes, policy would help. Uh, I started my business because I believe that business can and and is uh, the primary force for leadership when it comes to creating benefit for society and the environment, and Uh, because, frankly, I was sick of banging my head against the wall trying to create policy that never happened. So um, the reality is that policy could really help us if it helped to level the playing field for more responsible materials versus less responsible materials and help us make choices about the types of infrastructure that we want to build so that we can recover uh, materials responsibly. But that shouldn't stop us. There are millions of business opportunities that come from uh, recovering and reusing uh, materials that, uh, that, regardless of any policy that may come down the, you know, the pike, that still exists.
1: Adam Lowry's is co-founder of Method Products. We're talking about plastics and carbon at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Molly Morse, let's ask you what some of the companies are th- out there, other than your own, that are really exciting, that you think are creating really cool things, that t- taking waste and making it into an input that will really kind of change the way waste is handled and, and, and products are made.
2: One of the companies that I think is actually pretty interesting is called Harvest Power. They do um, dry fermentation of compost. So this is thinking very far into the future of what a sustainable you know, society could look like. And rather than compost as we conventionally think of it, where there's a lot of oxygen present, you can do anaerobic compost where there's no oxygen present. And in those cases, you actually collect the gas. So you collect the carbon that's coming off of that material and then you can reuse that for other things you can use it for electricity heating you could make it into more plastics um, so i think that's one of you know sort of like making materials sort of far thinking um, technologies and you know if we think of where recycling was 40 years ago and we think of how far we've come on that front how far compost still has to go i think things like dry fermentation um, is really interesting
1: Molly Morris is CEO of Mango Materials, a startup company here in the Bay Area. Uh, Bridget Luther, uh, we talked a little bit about carbon being not a villain. A lot of people think of carbon as the enemy. We've got to get it out. We've got to beat it down. Uh, Paul Hawken was here recently and said carbon is a friend. Carbon should not be our enemy. Tell us about how carbon could be an input and a, and a foundation for making products.
3: Yeah, we've been hearing a lot of companies now who are trying to pull carbon out of the air and make it into materials. I'm not sure how likely that is but i love that people are thinking about it you know how do you take carbon pull it out of the air and make something amazing i just um i mean just the whole idea of the methane-based polymer makes me so happy and i'm so excited for molly and the one reason i love it is it keeps going around one thing about recycling plastics every time you recycle it the polymer gets a little different so you can't that can't happen in perpetuity but with the um, methane-based polymer it can so you would actually make something, if you kept it, it could just keep going around, just like aluminum, just keeps going around and around and around. It's just such a strong bond that it's reusable over and over and over again. So those kinds of activities need to be incentivized.
1: And let's ask Keith Crispin, how many of your member companies are looking at those sorts of things? There's the innovator's dilemma, which is well-known, which large companies often don't innovate because they protect, defend the, the franchises that they've built that are so profitable – uh, you look at the mango materials, et cetera, thinking they might eat the lunch of your members one day? Well,
5: many of our <laughs> companies are looking at, um, at bio-based materials and other kinds of plastics. Um, some of the largest companies are the leaders in bio-based plastics in the world. High-density polyethylene that's made from sugar cane is one of the largest uses today of bioplastic. So in, in addition to bio-based PET, so, so many companies are looking at that and doing making many innovations to deliver new products along those lines. Adam Lowry?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I was disappointed when Coca-Cola shut down the largest PET recycling plant in the world, in South Carolina, and decided to do uh, bio-based PET instead because here was an opportunity to actually make a market for recycled material, and instead they went a bioplastic route that, without going into the science, isn't quite as good. From an environmental impact this is standpoint. the plant bottle that's yeah, so that there. they could put a green triangle on the bottle and say plant bottle now the reasons for that are obvious right consumers um, who are mostly uneducated about plastic issues see oh plant bottle that's great, awesome my my they've solved my water bottle dilemma <laughs> right and I can just keep using it and you know I, I don't pretend to know the reasons behind that, but um, i I wish that we would make more use of the technologies that we already have rather than keep pointing to the technologies that we could have tomorrow.
3: Virginia? A lot more recycling needs to happen. You know, that's the thing. There's just not enough of it going on. We're not capturing these materials in good cycles. That's why I say more states have to be like California. They have to start investing in the infrastructure to get, get, get this stuff back so that we can actually recycle it so that getting a piece of recycled Plastic won't be any big deal it will be your first choice instead of your second choice you will just do it it will become natural to you and say oh it's going to be recycled i'm just going to do this and this is part of my business plan now so i'd like to see just more states following california's lead on the other hand on some of these people making the bioplastics they ought to be also in investing in compostable facilities so that they know at the end of use that compostable, whatever it is, gets back into something that's valuable and doesn't become a piece of waste. It's just sitting in a trash can, you know, in Georgia. Can I add something on the
5: the, – I think there are a lot of exciting things happening in recycling across the country. And one of the things we've seen happen just in the last four years or so is a dramatic increase in the number of communities that have the ability to recycle non-bottle rigid containers locally. You know, you look back um, just five years ago, only about 30% of people could recycle that stuff at their home. Today, the number's over 60%, and it's growing very, very fast. And we've seen, as a result of that, the recycling of non-bottle rigid plastics go from 300 million pounds to over a billion pounds in just a few years. So it's tripled in just since 2007.
1: And non-bottle hard plastic, what's an example of that?
5: Butter tubs, um, large five-gallon pails. So a variety of rigid containers that people can now recycle at home that they weren't able to before. And I think that's something that we are seeing as more opportunity to recycle those materials.
1: Bridget Luther, does industry obstruct recycling plans and laws? Only 11 states have laws, uh, you said earlier. Uh, is industry
6: sort of...
3: Well, yes, because they have to pay a little bit into the front, And then they get the money back on the back end. So it starts to disrupt their business plan. So they don't like it. So yeah, they fight it. Wouldn't it be great if we just had a national bottle bill and somebody just stood up and said, you know, we're all going to recycle and that's going to be the end of it. They do it in Germany. They do a lot of it in Europe. So it would be really fun. Yeah, people are pretty, they get really excited when those things happen. But if we could sort of, we could learn from what's going on in California. We could see. It was really interesting to be in Sacramento. And we went from, Four cents on a bottle to five cents, the recycling rate went from 62% to over 80%, just with the addition of the penny. People just wanted to get that nickel back. Four cents didn't seem like enough. The nickel seemed like a lot, and everybody started recycling a lot more. It was amazing to watch. That happened in 18 months. So it was pretty amazing to see how quickly that nickel started to incentivize the consumers. But also the infrastructure was there so we could get the stuff back and put it into the recycling stream.
1: And we should clarify you're you were a Republican serving in the Schwarzenegger administration when that happened. Yes. Uh, McDonald's <laughs> recently. Um,
3: <laughs> one little
1: thing. <laughs> one penny. What amazing what one a penny, penny. what yeah. a penny can do. Yeah,
3: amazing what a penny can do. Uh,
1: McDonald's recently announced that they're going to move from polystyrene to uh, paper cups for hot beverages they their fourteen thousand. Restaurants in the United Um, States—is that a good move, or is that another one of those unintended consequences? Well, it sounds good, it sounds better, but maybe not so much. Richard Luther do you think?
3: (laughs) Whenever you can get rid of styrofoam, I'm all for it because it's just there's nothing you can do with it much at the end of life. So, um, I think it's a good move. Ironically,
5: ironically, there's more ability in the state of California to recycle polystyrene foam cups than there is to recycle or compost paper cups. 50% 50% of people in California can recycle polystyrene cups in the top 50 communities in California. And only 15% of people can uh, either recycle or compost paper cups. I wonder so, how
1: many people know they can recycle uh, styrofoam cups. That,
5: well, um, it's not in, in, in San Francisco, but you go in Southern California and L.A. and other areas around there, they do. Okay. So um, it needs to be put with your infrastructure that you have locally. So that, that's the important part. Uh, before we go to audience questions,
1: I want to come back to consumer confusion and labeling because all this is so complicated. How can consumers be educated? Are there, uh, there's lots of attempts to have some kind of simple label for what's recyclable, recycled. Is there any hope there, Adam Lowry, for some <laughs> simple
4: uh, logos yeah, that does you know, it
1: all at the brand level, which is where you do it?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we do is we try to use our brand to mm-hmm. carry a message. You know, we call, we call this ocean plastic message in a bottle. And it's really that we're just trying to raise awareness about think about it before you buy it, whether you're talking about a cleaning product or any other type of product. And that really is as simple of a a message as we go with because it is super confusing. We we can't expect consumers to be plastic scientists. That is just unrealistic. Um, And until such point that we have a system, which I hope we do, where we can clearly identify plastics and those plastics are matched up with the ability to recover them and recycle and ultimately reuse them, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to rely on people like everyone here uh, to know, or at least seek out, something that's a, a little bit more responsible.
5: I think Keith Yeah, I think the Sustainable Packaging Coalition's new How to Recycle label will offer a lot in that regard because it will make it easier for consumers to recognize things that are recyclable, and it will inform them what to do with things. The, an example is the the film that goes around. Uh, a case of soda or the film that goes around a a case of paper towels. People don't know that material can be recycled but this new label will will tell them they can recycle it and tell them they can bring it back to the stores and put it in the recycling bin at the front. So that's a, a real opportunity we've been working with them in the state of Wisconsin to promote that. And more people become aware of that. It's an easy thing to do, dry cleaning bags and and other products like that as well.
4: Yeah, Greg, ultimately, it's going to be a multifaceted and multilateral solution. I think one other really key component is the business community should take the onus on itself to make things out of the materials that are already recycled. Because if they do that, then they're also sending a message to consumers when they buy those products that this is already made from a recycled material. So you should recycle it again so we can keep that going.
1: I think on, on just one thing, on, on soap, wouldn't it be better to use a bar of soap with no plastic bottle at all?
4: Um, from a plastic standpoint, it certainly would. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, a bar of soap has fairly limited applications. If you've ever tried to use it to uh, uh, clean your laundry or clean your floors, you'd, you'd uh, But you'd hand soap. Yeah.
1: I mean, some, some environmental groups say, don't use plastic bottles for hand soap. Use an old-fashioned bar.
4: Yeah, you certainly can do that. I think one of the... One of the things that is important to recognize is that there's many different consumer habits out there. And um, it's harder to change consumer behavior than it is to redesign products. And so if you can actually redesign products and get people to adopt a more innovative and more sustainable format, you can keep people moving along to progressively more innovative and sustainable uh, products. So um, pumping, got soap, to do both. pumping nice. hand soap is more fun. Thats what it comes <laughs> Well, to. I mean many to many consumers it is and 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 it's also a you know a better experience in, on your hands and things so there's a lot of reasons why mm-hmm. people use liquid hand soap and you know you've got to work with that, not against it necessarily. Molly Morris, and then we'll go to audience questions, Molly.
2: Oh, I was just going to say I think there's two confusing issues in terms of labeling. One is where did this material come from? Where did the carbon originate that's in the packaging? and the other is what's going to happen to this material when you no longer need it? These so those are two issues that can really confuse consumers, and clearer labeling is definitely needed.
1: This is Climate One. I've just heard from Molly Morse, CEO of Mango Materials. Our other guests today are Bridget Luther, president of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, the cleaning products company, and Keith Crispin with the American Chemistry Council. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
7: Uh, you mentioned that there's enough aluminum on the planet to not have to mine anymore? Is there enough plastic on the planet to do the same thing?
4: Adam Lowry? Well, nearly every single pound of plastic that humanity has ever produced is still here. Most of it is in the ground, and we can't practically get it back. Um, Plastic use is growing, so um, it's growing a little bit. So no is the simple answer, but the vast, vast majority of it we actually could do with the plastic we already have on the planet if we had better ways of getting it back. Let's have our next question.
2: Welcome to Climate One. Thank you all very much. It's been quite interesting. However, every time we hear these panels, we hear one thing, lots of plastic in landfills. Has anyone considered mining the landfills for all this plastic? It seems like that's where most of it is.
1: Bridget Luther, you used to oversee a department. Is that, is that uh, economic?
3: <laughs> I'm laughing because we've had this conversation over and over again that there's these... We used to actually call our recycling program urban mining because I also oversaw all the mining industries in California. And there are, there are ample opportunities to try to get stuff um, out and reuse it. And we have lots of experts in the room who could talk about this much more than I can, and I would just encourage you to look at Mike Biddle's YouTube video. He's uh, done a lot of study on this, and he's with us here tonight. He's with NBA Polymers, and he's probably one of the world's great experts on you know where we can get the next round of resources so I would just encourage everyone here to look at uh, Mike's YouTube video. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Um, one of the things I've heard quite a bit about is infrastructure, and you mentioned that the rest of the states in, in our country really need to get on board with an infrastructure like we have in California. How can we make the responsibility on those folks who are making these products to create the infrastructure to recycle these products and maybe focus our policy on requiring them to use the recycled material that they're creating
1: so bridget luther there are some things where uh producers have to take back computers there's a charge for consumer electronics etc there's some closed loops there but plastics is so ubiquitous is that yeah
3: plastics is the hardest thing because they're so small and it's not that much value in it but one of the things you do with the cradle cradle certification program is when you design the product you're actually thinking at the end of use So have I developed the system that gets back this, whatever it is, whether it's a refrigerator, a car, or a plastic bottle? And the the businesses start to get really involved with the getting back of these nutrients because it's really important because they want them back to put them into their next material. See, if Coke had been smart, you know, they would have said, we should get all our bottles back so we won't have to make new bottles, and they would have just sucked up all the recycled plastic on the planet. But they... You know, they're not thinking about that. They're just thinking about getting you to drink that drink. Let's have our next question.
2: My question is directed for Mrs. Luther. I'm a huge fan of your work in Cradle to Cradle Mission. And I read the upcycle in which William McDonough discussed stripping products of their plastic packaging and instead including elaborate displays in these stores so that people can simply get the product and leave. And have you done any of this work with the companies that you're currently working with?
3: We don't do the work with the companies. We just give them the idea. They do the work, and then they tell us what they've done. But lots of companies are starting to think about this. You know, what's going to happen at the end of use? And we have to start talking about end of life. And when you start doing that as a designer like the method team has done, it just gets to be really dynamic, and all kinds of fun things can happen. The Herman Miller chair, the Aeron chair, actually got developed because Herman Miller didn't want to put foam in their chair. So they developed one of the fastest-selling office chairs ever. They're on chair because in their design, so what's going to happen in this? Well, now we're going to end up with all this foam. We don't have anywhere to go. What's the, at the end of that use of that Herman Miller chair? is a lot of super valuable materials that can be easily recycled.
4: Adam Lowry? I think one of the keys to moving towards progressively more sustainable formats and to, to your question, getting entirely out of plastic packaging altogether is serial innovation. So I always say that that the key to the innovation process is not necessarily technology and creativity and all of that. That's important. But actually, the most important part is adoption. You've got to get people to use it. And if people use a thing that's cool, that's more sustainable, then that wave of consumer adoption gives that company the license to innovate again. And it's through a couple of steps like that you, you can actually change entire industries. i don't have time to go into it, but we've actually done that with a couple of categories that we compete in and radically changed industries that are very stodgy in a very short period of time just through a couple of innovation steps, but adoption is the key. Uh, Let's have our next question on Climate One.
3: I don't know um, if there's anything going on right now about um, businesses. They seem to be making an awful lot of products that are single-use and small. I mean, an example is The little coffee cup things that you get, they're all over the place. I mean, you go to a dentist's office anywhere, you know, and the whole concept of just making a pot of coffee, the whole concept of refills, I don't see anything... In our government or in our environment that's encouraging that, I see the opposite. I see mops. It used to be, like 10 years ago, you could just get a mop and mop the floor, but now you've got to get Swiffer and throw things away and buy new things. And
1: Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we, live <in> a, <laughs> Luther, we live in a disposable society.
3: We actually, the Nespresso, not uh-huh. to plug it, but they're actually recyclable. will actually take them back, and they thought that through. That's what makes it so neat what's going to happen to that little coffee thing at the end of use you can actually take your little coffee things back to the espresso store and they're recycling them and they're made out of aluminum which is highly recyclable wonder so how many really of... do but okay adam <laughs>
4: oh i all i was going to say is uh, that's just evidence that convenience can often uh produce uh behaviors that aren't necessarily the most sustainable and we, I don't think we can try to make our lives a whole lot less convenient. I don't think that's actually practical. I don't think that uh, that would create mass adoption. But what we can do is redesign those products to be more responsible, which is, I think, the example you gave.
1: We're talking about plastics and carbon and Climate One. Let's have our next question. Welcome.
3: Thank you. This has been an excellent forum, um, something that's very frustrating to me and to my family when I go out of state to visit them. They very much want to recycle, and uh, they do their due diligence collecting the newspaper, collecting cans and bottles, and then they drive them once a month to a recycling center that, you know, they get a certain amount of cash for, pennies on the dollar. Um, so I think they are probably indicative of people throughout the United States and that they're – I think the people want to recycle. Why can't we make a stand here tonight now with Climate One to get all the other states on board And recycle, Bridget Luther.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're going to march to
3: Texas, Nevada, and Arizona. March to DC to start the National Recycling Bill. Um, Yeah, it's actually you know driving your stuff to recycling center is the way it all started in California. So the fact that people are starting to see value in this and getting paid for it is really important. But there's lots of businesses in it too. I mean, there's you know it's not a trash truck; it's a resource truck. You know, there's lots of valuable resources in those trucks. As more companies demand recycled plastic, then somebody in those states will actually say, Oh, I should get that plastic back because then method will want it and whoever else will want
4: it. Financing financing is key. The facility at Pier ninety six here in San Francisco costs forty million bucks. The the machine costs forty million bucks. Now, you know, it's producing product that is now being sold, but financing is key. You've got to um, find ways of, of creating long-term income streams to, to defray the upfront investments.
1: And there's also uh, commodity prices. Uh, Dave Steiner, the CEO of Waste Management, was here a couple of years ago, and he realizes the economic value that he hauls away in those trucks every day, but it's largely dependent on commodity prices for aluminum, paper, et etc. When those fluctuate, the economics go, are favorable or not, and, they, and they're so volatile that it's tough to, uh, to build a business. Uh, let's have our next question on Climate One.
8: I wanted to address, uh, shall we say, the uh, short-term economic uh, incentives. Keith, you mentioned uh, that there's uh, basically more uh, demand than supply for recycled plastics. I guess part of that is that, as you say, there are films that can be recycled. Very few people know that. Bags can be recycled at stores. But, yes, you can bring your bag back, and maybe you get to feel good, but you don't get any money back for it. Uh, You do get money back if you bring your bottles. And so... The people who roam the streets are picking up bottles, but they're not picking up film. They're not picking up uh, the other stuff that could be recycled. So, I guess one comment would be that you know recycling is third in the order for reason that sure. reduces is 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 better and reuse is, is second. There's recycling But what what is your um, your stance on basically paying people to bring stuff back uh, to have a, a, a usable? Uh, return program for all the other stuff that they're not currently uh, recycling and bringing back?
5: Well, I think the, there are some potential downsides to having everybody bring their stuff back instead of having a, a truck that goes and collects multiple recyclables rather than just, just one. And that downside is there are a lot of carbon emissions with people making special trips to drop stuff off. However, um, some states have actually gotten rid of the bottle bill. Delaware, for example had a bottle deposit legislation in place and they found that um, they didn't have other recycling programs as as a result. So instead they got rid of the statewide bottle program and replaced it with statewide curbside recycling. That um, is another thing to consider because right now you have people bringing back one product and that sometimes brings one of the more valuable materials out of the recycling bin that people have at their house and can make it harder for recyclers to be profitable. Keith Christman is a managing director for Plastics Markets at the
1: American Chemistry Council. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Uh,
7: my name is Steve Wilson. I'm the policy director for the Five Gyres Institute. And a lot of what we're talking about tonight is recycling. And when I look at our policy agenda with Five Gyres, we, we, we're looking at you know, what, what solution is actually going to address the problem. And recycling is a very small part of that. If we look at generation in this country, the average footprint of plastic per person in the U.S. is 326 pounds per person per year. That's set to be upwards of 500 by 2020. We talk about modest gains in recycling. Well, as a percentage of generation, that's actually really, really minimal. And if you talk about things like low-density polyethylene or high-density polyethylene, these have flatlined or gone backwards. So... When I look at our policy agenda, we say, yeah, ban the bag. We say container deposits because, you know, the number one barrier to a cradle-to-cradle strategy for the PET bottle is? It's container deposits. You can actually make a water bottle, a food-grade water bottle, out of a water bottle. And you have people like Nestle Waters looking at this now, and they say, yeah, we have 50% recycled content. The barrier to 100% is a container deposit. We could solve this problem overnight. So I'm wondering, when we talk about recycling as a solution, are are we really talking about the big picture solution, or are we talking about a very small part of it? And shouldn't the conversation be more focused on source reduction?
5: Actually, that's a great point. I mean, the, the hierarchy is reduce, reuse, recycle for a reason, and. Um, We strongly support reducing, reusing, and recycling plastics as well as other materials. I think one of the things that people should also recognize is when you look at plastics, one of their major benefits is reduction in the amount of material you use for plastic product compared to the alternative. You look at a a truck, for example, the replacement of a running board from a metal running board to a plastic running board, reduced the amount of material by 50% and results in just that one part in saving 2.7 million gallons of gasoline. So reducing is an important factor, and uh, actually plastics can help achieve that, both in automotive applications and in in, in packaging. Reusing and recycling are also very important. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
6: Thank you. This is sort of a follow-on to the last question. I'm really encouraged to hear the discussion about redesigning products, to hear about starting from the beginning of the product, because... What we're seeing in the marketplace right now is a growth of unrecyclable products and a growth of products that are either designed for the dump or uh, what I would call uh, built to be burned, because it's not happening in, in much places in California, but in many places around the U.S., a lot of waste still gets burned, and the American Chemistry Council and other industry actors push really hard for an increase in plastics and other, and other parts of waste being burned. And um, that's a real problem for the communities who have to live with the toxic pollution from the burning of plastics and other, and other waste. So my question is, you know, we're hearing that we have a lot of policy solutions. We're hearing that industry doesn't want them. What's it going to take for us to get to a place where we can actually achieve the types of policy solutions that we need? We know we need them. Keith
1: Crispin, does the industry support burning of plastics?
5: Well, I think that there's a couple of things that are really exciting on the, on the energy recovery front for plastics. Um, today, it's not just about burning when it comes to energy recovery. There are new processes to take uh, plastics, put them into a system where it's not burned, but you're able to recapture the fuel from it or recapture the raw materials and make them back into new fuel or new plastics. A company in Oregon is doing that, for example, um, called Agilix, and, and there are other companies around the world pursuing those processes. It's not burning technology. It's a uh, taking the the plastic and breaking it back down to its original raw material so it can be reused again. And that's part of a solution. I think what we need is a wide range of solutions, including reducing, reusing, recycling, composting, and energy recovery. All of those together will help be part of the solution.
1: I think we actually reach out to Agilex uh, in uh, building this program. Let's have our last question. Welcome.
0: Um, I'd like to follow up with some of the questions that I think the audience has brought up and just sort of the overall theme that has been coming up relating to infrastructure and the kind of lack of any hope of there being policies made on a national level, or, I mean, could we say international level, to make these things happen. Um, and it's so amazing what you guys are doing to have this certification process for manufacturers However, is there any discussion on generating policy that does require end-of-use responsibility on the manufacturing side? Um, I I think it was a really great question that the woman in the green shirt brought up about um, governments being so strapped at this point.
1: Uh, So, Bridget Luther, if you could wave your magic wand, one policy in Sacramento that would help this, what would you want?
3: All the products have to get Cradle Cradle certified. (laughs) 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 Oh, I walked right into that yeah, one. You was, yeah, you did.
4: You teed that
2: one out. Look, oh, yeah. if they
3: did, they 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 design reuse and they design with the materials that won't kill us, and they'll they'll pay everybody a fair wage, and they'll care about water, and they'll move to renewable energy. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this work because I was sitting at Sacramento and I said, we're not going to get there the way we're doing it because we, as a regulatory community, we sit at the end of the pipe all day long, and we say how much stuff can we have in our air our waters ourselves before it will kill us and we will not get there with the regulations that are now because that's the way they're designed and that's the way they're implemented and that's the way the companies get fine and cradle to cradle goes all the way up and says let's design products with systems and processes that don't harm people and planet so it's really up to businesses like Adams because he's right there with us and he's designing this incredible product that's not only cleans like crazy but it's got this social benefit as well, and he's designing it with processes. And he's completely renewable energy, and he's done all this great stuff. You ought to imagine the stuff he's done with his company. And Molly, too. I mean, she's just she's got a cradle-to-cradle cradle polymer, and I just can't wait for it to scale because I'm going to push it out in any way that I can. And I just want the American Chemistry Council to say, I'm with you, Bridge. So anyway. <laughs>
1: Sound like a proud auntie, proud mama there. Okay, I think we have, to, we have to end it there. We've been talking about plastics at Climate One. Our guests are Bridget Luther, president of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, Adam Lowry, co founder and chief greenskeeper at Method Products, Molly Morse, CEO of Mango Materials, and Keith Christman, managing director for plastics markets at the American Chemistry Council. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming and listening to Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.